Welcome to Resolutions, a podcast about dispute resolution and prevention. This podcast is a project by the ABA section of dispute resolution to increase the avenues where we can connect. One of four hosts serve as interlocutor, engaging in conversations with members of the dispute resolution community about topics of interest in the field. My name is Caroline Stauffer, and this week I'm sitting with sibling co-founders of Resolute, a Berlin-based nonprofit organization. Helen and Sebastian Winter will discuss important lessons from their interdisciplinary work with refugee shelters and their approach of teaching psychosocial peer mediation, also known as PPM. Welcome, Helen, and welcome, Sebastian, to the ABA podcast. We're excited to have you and learn more about what you're doing in Berlin, Germany. Yeah, thank you so much, Caroline, for having us. It's a pleasure to be here on the podcast. So my name is Helen. I'm an intercultural mediator and lawyer by background with an LLM from the Strauss Institute, so quite familiar with Pepperdine in Los Angeles. And um, we have basically founded an organization, a charitable organization called Resolute three years ago, right after my LLM at Strauss. And this organization seeks to empower refugees and locals with conflict resolution skills. And the way we do this is by story sharing forums, by conflict resolution workshops, and also peer mediation workshops. Uh, But one important aspect of our workshops is actually also mental health awareness, since we found that talking about mental health is very important when it comes to conflict, as it can be a major reason for conflict as well. So this is what we do in a nutshell. Yeah, thank you so much, Caroline. Also from my side, I, as Helen already said, I'm uh, Helen's brother. I'm also a co-founder of Resolute, and my background is in uh, clinical medicine and neuroscience. And so Helen and I actually uh, co-founded this together with two other Americans. So we were all based in the U.S. while this was happening, 2017. And uh, so it's been quite interesting because obviously the refugee crisis started sort of in 2015 and we saw this, this huge migratory wave to Europe and sort of the aftermath of that. And it was quite interesting for us to take a bit of an outsider's perspective at the time to really sort of look at what's going on in Europe, what's going on in Germany, and then sort of migrating some of the concepts that were partially coined in the US and applying that to, to Germany and sort of marrying the two subjects of uh, law and medicine. And that's really sort of what what Resolute is about. Um, so it's also kind of this this multidisciplinary effort to try and really see um, how can we best uh, sort of use our fields to address a specific need and to sort of help improve some of the structural problems that we see here. I think it's brilliant that you both have married law and medicine together in your practice. And I also heard you talk about a unique perspective. What was that unique perspective and was it helpful in your approach to the refugee crisis? Yeah, so um, by the time that the so-called refugee crisis um, happened, so a lot of people came to Germany and that was in 2015-2016 and by now 1.2 million refugees actually have settled in Germany. By the time that was happening, I was studying um, at Pepperdine, doing my master's in district resolution. And I was wondering, actually being so far away from home and looking at 
Germany from this outsider perspective that Seb just mentioned, I was wondering, okay, how can I be of help? And how can I actually use the tools that I've learned at Pepperdine to kind of improve the situation for refugees? And then, um, you know, I was writing some papers about this, of, uh, about peer mediation, and I came across the work of Mrs. Kaufer, who is doing uh, peer mediation in prisons. And I found that really fascinating. And I thought, okay, you know, we can actually do something similar in Germany or try something similar. And then I was doing an internship at the United Nations and talked to a colleague of mine there about this idea. And then he said, you know, Helen, this is so fascinating and interesting. Could you please just do it? And I was like, okay, but how am I going to do it? You know, I have no knowledge uh, on how to um, found an organization, let alone have, I have no team, you know, no team members. And then he said, yeah, you know what? You have your first team member right here. Let's do this together. I studied business uh, in my master's and uh, why don't we just try it? And so we kind of started doing this like, needs assessment from the US and we did research okay is this already something that is happening in Germany or not and we came across almost nothing like this and actually up to today there's there's nothing similar like resolute uh, going on that actually migrants are empowered with uh, the tools of dispute resolution but also get the chance to talk about difficult um, yeah, topics such as discrimination or hatred or racism that they face when they come to Germany uh, on uh, yeah, almost a daily basis and then also the other way around that locals get to ask refugees yeah. about stereotypes that they have for example why do all Arabs talk so loudly on the phone or you know um, uh, that would that would be something locals would ask them and then refugees would ask yeah but why do locals sit away from us on the bus and we would kind of try to cultivate this form of trust in those first session of our workshops and yeah make people feel comfortable to speak about such difficult topics and to open up about those without being um, afraid or being yeah uh, being afraid to lose to lose faith so this is kind of this is kind of uh, was our idea and so now i'm talking a lot about this but but this is this is how it started and how we then tried to implement in germany and we saw there was such a huge huge need when we started doing it and the team started growing and my brother came on board being a, a medical doctor and realizing that there's a lot of trauma i'm sure he will talk about that now uh, among the refugee population that leads to conflict and so we understood, okay, this is something we need to include in our story sharings and our trainings. That is something that we cannot overlook. And, uh, and once we started giving our training, there was such a big need. So many people wanted to join and wanted to talk about all these things that I just addressed because there had only been other projects, for example, inviting people to cook together or to play, play soccer together. But uh, it's very different. I mean, of course, that's great that people get to know each other through activities on one hand, but on the other hand, it, it also ignores pressing questions individuals might have, um, uh, which need this form of trust uh, to, to, to be addressed. Uh, yeah, I think just to go back to, to uh, 2017, uh, it was uh, actually quite similar for me, the situation where Helen came to me with this this idea and she had been discussing this with her colleague. And then I sort of tried to see things a bit uh, admittedly biased through a medical lens. And obviously the, the topic of trauma came up. And uh, what we see among refugee communities is obviously an unprecedented need for mental health services. We have 
prevalence rates of mental health disorders among refugees up to 50%. Often this is post-traumatic stress disorder related, it's secondary depression and anxiety disorders, somatoform disorders, drug abuse and addiction. So there's a lot of of need uh, there. And unfortunately, as Helen already mentioned, there are not so many platforms to really raise this. And clearly, uh, not just in, in the Middle Eastern cultures, but also here in, in Germany and Europe and the US, mental health is still being heavily stigmatized. And so what we really aim to do is to have sort of this holistic concept where we could say, okay, on the one hand, we want to address conflict, but we cannot do that without addressing trauma because conflict can lead to trauma and vice versa, traumatized individuals can become victims uh, of trauma or also you know, find themselves in a situation where they, they uh, enter into discipline, um, uh, interpersonal conflict. And so this was a, a very big topic for us on the agenda. And we then tried to develop a curriculum where we could subtly introduce mental health awareness and mental health literacy among participant groups. It is very apparent that you both have passion for the work that you do. And it is really interesting to think that these individuals are coming in to a country that is unbeknownst to them. They don't know who you are. You are not familiarized with their country or their culture. What are the first things that you say to them when they first come into the room before the training begins, before learning about what they'll be doing? What are the first words that you say to them? Um, so what I find really important to say uh, right before I would start such a story sharing or training is that, you know, I would say something like, I have no ideas what you guys have been through and I cannot imagine what it's like to flee your home country, you know, but I'm here to give you the tools or the skills of mediation and to provide you um, with an environment that we can talk freely about some of your conflicts that you're facing on a daily life. And that's why it's so important um, to have a co-facilitator who has a refugee background. And that's also part of our concept. We have um, always a co-facilitator that has lived in a refugee shelter before and that knows exactly what it's like to be there and uh, what it's like to be a refugee. Um, and and that's, that's the moment where I would hand over to, for example, Mohammed, my co-trainer, who would then introduce himself and, and relate in a way that I cannot. And this actually causes people to to really trust us from the beginning because everybody is afraid and nobody has ever, for example, taken part in a story sharing before. And it, for most people, it's the first time. And that's why it's so important to start off very authentic. And even I even try to, to make a few jokes if I can, just to, to lighten up the mood, you know, just for people to, to be at ease and to not be afraid because everybody's like, okay, what's a workshop? Do I have to work in a workshop? You know, that, that's the, the mentality and, and everybody uh, just needs to settle in and, and feel welcome, but also understand that, you know, we want to speak uh, on, you know, on one eye level with everybody. And we don't need to come in and say, okay, we have something that you don't know. Uh, that's why our trainings are also super, super interactive, and uh, we highly encourage um, dialogue and role plays and, and this learning by doing uh, mindset, as well as 
uh, we, we are super curious. We are asking people, so what is your experience uh, with mediation? And some would say, you know, um, in my culture, we have elders and elders are sort of like a, an arbitrator and they help families to get to a solution when they have a problem, for example. Uh, and so this is something we can work with and we can we can relate and, and people can relate to and can say, um, oh, I understand what mediation is slightly about at least, you know, uh, just, and, and that's, that's something we want to encourage. We, we want people to, to um, yeah, to tell us what they know and to learn from them as well. Absolutely. Uh, and maybe just to add to that with the story sharing, uh, when once we start, I think one of the initial things we also always say that it's a, it sounds a bit tacky, but that it's a safe space. And I think that's very, very important for everyone to acknowledge because throughout the course of the story sharing, invariantly topics will come up that are very emotional, that are partially very personal. And it's extremely important, not just for the participants to tr build trust within the group, but also the trainers to build trust with participants and vice versa. And um, it's also an incredible learning effect for our trainings. I think I don't think there has been a single training we walked out of where we haven't learned so many things from that participant group and taken away so many incredible experiences. So it really goes both ways. And I think that's what makes the trainings very special. It's what makes the story sharings uh, incredibly powerful. And um, for the story sharings, we really have this sort of three-tiered approach where first we try to build this form of trust that I spoke about. And then as a second step, it's also about giving participants a platform to verbalize their most pressing concerns. And quite often that's already enough. Also in, in terms of mental health, it's a first and very valuable step to really acknowledge, to verbalize the trauma or to verbalize the painful experience and then have others actually just acknowledge this. So there have been actually studies on this, that the mere acknowledgement of the group that this trauma has occurred can already have benefit. So that's a, it's a very integral part of the story sharing. It's a common community-based acknowledgement that everybody has something to contribute and that um, the stories are important and worth sharing and the third element is really for us also pragmatic um, it's a kind of a needs assessment for our trainer team if you will because we obviously work in a variety of shelters and there's a lot of uh, heterogeneity in these shelters people come from all different backgrounds and there might be unique specific problems in specific types of shelters and so for us it's really about how can we maximize the value for participants and that's why this initial story sharing is so important because it's also a needs assessment for us moving further with the conflict competency and psychosocial peer mediation training so i would like to gain more understanding about how refugees find your programming and what were the learning curves in creating this curriculum were there any barriers such as culture or power dynamics? So to your first question, it was actually really hard in the beginning to find participants. We thought it's so easy to walk into the shelter, um, you know, just come and say everybody can join, but it wasn't. In fact, we were sometimes just sitting there in the backyard on our little booth, uh, trying to find people to come and motivate people because most of them are obviously yeah um, very stuck in their lives and um, the conditions in the shelter are, are not great i mean uh, people have limited resources a lot of people live in a very cramped space 
uh, together. There are no facilities for children. Then you have so many different backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds, different religious backgrounds. And all of that, of course, leads to conflict and it's draining for people to be in such an environment, sometimes for more than two years. Sometimes people say they're up to five years. So as you can imagine, it's it's quite hard to motivate people. And so after a while, we understood, okay, we have to do it a bit differently. Um, we have to speak to people who already have their trust. And that would be the social workers that work with them every day. That would be the shelters management. Um, we would have to find points of entry um, in structures that already exist. For example, a residence council that has been established, if we are lucky, right? Um, so you will always, always find people that are interested in, in our workshops and that want to take responsibility also for the community, um, but it's hard for them to, to find us. And um, so we understood we have to communicate with the shelters management, we have to um, really rely on the social workers at site and be with them and have this, you know, information event, invite people, bring a lunch, make it fun. Uh, have food together and um, and really invite people to sort of this informal info session in the beginning together with the social workers and have everybody on one table for people to sign up for the workshops and uh, that was a long way until, until uh, we understood that but now it's working so well that we have almost no dropout rate so once a person starts the training they stay with us and they stay in the training which is of course, what we want, and which is something that other projects um, we often hear cannot uh, achieve in that way. And that's also because we, we, we try to find people who, as I said, you know, have this mindset that they want to be responsible for the community, they want to take on responsibility, and they want this uh, sort of this autonomy. Um, yeah, and so uh, that's to the uh, to the first question. Okay, so uh, to your question, was there a learning curve? Uh, definitely, there was a huge learning curve for us. I think once we started out, we really sort of tried to actually listen to what the needs are, go to local language cafes, you know, where German volunteers would teach refugees German and really sort of gauge the room, if you will, um, try to sort of see if uh, this concept could be something of interest to refugees, try to understand better what the problems are, and then uh, over time develop a curriculum and actually refine this curriculum uh, gradually. And this, is, this was a process that took a lot of learning also from our side. Uh, so initially, I mean, my background is in medicine and, and academic research. And so I initially went into, this, into these mental health awareness workshops with a mind, mindset, okay, we're going to do some sort of uh, lecture style, seminar style intervention which is obviously completely wrong because none of these top-down mechanisms work and they're also not really impactful and ultimately not really of value and of, of so much benefit uh, for the refugees. And so you, you have to how completely... How frustrating and sorry. Absolutely. How frustrating because that was... And how much time did you spend doing that? I think we, we learned fairly quickly that that's not the, the way to go and that really we would need to flip this concept and have a, a more of a, a bottom-up approach where... Uh, we really start and the threshold is very, very low and we actually try to activate existing resources and ask, okay, what do you actually know about, uh, about mental health? What do you know about uh, chronic stress? Do you know uh, people who have been affected by some of these conditions? Do you have stories to share? 
about this. So sort of really to try to understand the existing concepts and the existing knowledge and then build on that and really see where the questions are and then try to address these. And it's like Helen said, it was very much developed in tandem with refugee co-trainers who actually managed to get out of the shelters, find a job, uh, make a living, which is what a lot of refugees who are living in these shelters look up to. And obviously the goal is to leave these shelters and, and make a living in Germany. And so we really um, use these uh, role models and they are actually, they are role models for refugees uh, to, to help us to understand what the needs are and they could contribute incredible uh, case studies that we've designed uh, together with refugee co-trainers that could in contribute incredible content to our curriculum. So it's very much based on real-life case examples and um, real-life situations that ref refugees have been through. And it's very closely adapted to what the specific needs are. And I'm wondering, are these diagnoses that you are, are giving or are these individuals have uh, maybe some preliminary workup before you meet them. Additionally, I wanted to know what are some of the things that cause these diagnoses? I think we always try to sort of avoid uh, diagnosing uh, whenever possible because it's, it's, it's sort of easy to slip into these patterns where you sort of say, oh, this, this person has this diagnosis and this must be this uh, type of condition. I think that's sort of not the the goal that we have, I think the goal is really to enable mental health awareness and mental health literacy. Now, now what does that mean? I think it's really a recognition of the significance of mental health, how important it is for your own personal health, for your happiness, for your well-being, but also for your a healthy interpersonal relationship with others. And so we really try to um, to move away from from diagnosing and putting people into categories. Um, and actually trying to sort of explain mental health via the so-called uh, biopsychosocial model. And I think that has all the components, namely, namely one, that it's a biological phenomenon. If something happens to you, if you're sequentially traumatized, you flee your home country, your, um, your family, some, some people die, uh, you come here into a host country, you have a culture shock, you're being put in a refugee shelter, obviously that does something to you and your brain physically rewires, there's physical change going on and that change manifests in behavior and that change manifests potentially in conflict and it will impair your quality of life, it will affect your, your um, perception of the environment. And I think we try to sort of normalize that a little bit and say, okay, look, this, this does something to the body and this is something that can be treated. And it's something that's important to treat because it's, it's present in our social dynamics it's present in in our own well-being and happiness in every element of life because the brain is ultimately what we are and what makes us human and i think that's that's uh, one very important point uh, just to add to your your point about culture and our difficulties i think there's an, an interesting story that we had fairly in the beginning helen you will remember this in one of the refugee shelters when we went in and we were really completely new it was i think one of the first shelters and we uh, were obviously there on the dot being really German at 5 p.m. sharp uh, and there were no participants. The room was That's there and <laughs> management had opened the room and there was just no one there. And then we found out, oh, everybody is uh, sort of having having tea. And then we went to the to the shelters and there was uh, one of the uh, the refugees who, as it turns out, was a former chef 
he had a, a restaurant before in, in Syria and he invited us for tea and you know he was very very polite uh, telling us okay look why don't you come in come into my house have some tea and we said oh yeah let's absolutely do that but let's do it after the workshop because you know all of our volunteers are here now we want to do this with you it's already uh, quarter past and it was starting at five and uh, we then just said okay look just tell everyone just bring everyone and went back and nobody showed up and for us we actually learned later <laughs> because one of the refugees told us that it's it's one of the biggest insults that that you can do in i think arab cultures is to decline an invitation to have tea because that's that's uniquely important it's an important part of the culture to drink tea together to have an agreement and um we had sort of completely wow. violated that code very unknowingly in our germanness of thinking about punctuality and it's something that we really learned and it's uh, now i think when we go to workshops there will always be tea uh, it's an integral component of the workshops to have to drink tea together and so you uh, learned your lesson very yeah, well. these little things really that that you learn absolutely to the field yeah yeah and and to add to that because you also asked about uh, what it's like to be a female um there, there was another interesting incident with one of the elder participants who was about I think 62 years old from Syria and a former teacher and um, the, the entire training had gone well and really in the last workshop session he, he stood up suddenly and we were already about to you know hand out certificates and celebrate together uh, celebrate the newly the, the freshly baked peer mediators and then he stood up and he said to me you know Helen to be honest I really think a mediator has to be a male and um, has to be really old <laughs> with lots of, you know, life experience. And thankfully, translation was a bit delayed because I was already, you know, getting super um, mad about this um, and had to kind of like calm myself down when I tried to explain to him that, you know, it's it's also about, uh, you know, what you learn and uh, and again competencies uh, that you can acquire. But uh, but actually, that same that same peer mediator later turned out to be one of the most active peer mediators that promoted peer mediation in the entire shelter and helped me promote peer mediation. And um, as somebody approached, uh, we had a little booth um, uh, stand at the at the summer festival, and somebody approached him and asked him a question, and he really said to him. And to this guy who asked him a question, you know, you have to ask the boss, and he pointed at me. Uh, you have to ask her; uh, she will she will know the answer. Which was really kind and and nice in a way. Uh, he kind of made up for his his earlier comments um, sure. that he made because you have to be prepared for comments like that. And and obviously, mm -hmm. I'm so thankful to to always have a co-facilitator because I think without one, it's even harder. But you really have to just you know, stay, stay calm and be yourself and, uh, and be authentic. And then people will appreciate you. And we get so many things and, and people are, are very much appreciative of the work we do, which is also obviously very nice uh, to, as a reward. And, and that's also important to always remember your rewards when you do such difficult work. In fact, where sometimes you hear very traumatizing stories of participants, um, for example, uh, that you know they they share with you that they lost their entire family in the blink of an eye due to a bomb attack in Afghanistan one of the participants told me that you know he, he learned over social media that his father was killed in a bomb attack and and it's really really difficult to to respond to that and I always choose 
authenticity and choose to relate and um you know since our father actually passed away also three years ago this is something that we share with the participants even though you know some people would say in mediation you don't share that much about yourself i always think it's important because even that it's pain but you know you can, i would still not even be able to imagine such great pain of a person losing the entire family in the blink of an eye and learning about it through social media and i mean it's stories like this and that's why i said earlier it's important to to really remember that you know we're doing um this work for a reason and and um people want to talk about these stories and it's really hard for somebody to have this boiled up inside them and not be able to talk about it. and it's really empowering i think to witness people talk about stories like that and to experience for the first time in their lives that about 20 people are listening to them and about 20 people you know have tears in their eyes and are empathizing with them and i think this is such a powerful experience that makes people also feel more welcome and and understood you know so this is actually one of the, the most important parts uh, and again i'm sure many other colleagues in this podcast have mentioned it, active listening is is probably the the key right to any of this this work yeah so for anyone who's listening i think they're getting ready to pack up their bags and head to berlin to work with you guys so so important this work that you're doing and and very much needed because i think when we we get into this field we kind of go maybe to the more popular what's hot what's 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 give, gains the most media and i think this is something that you know i'm sure is an issue here in the united states but we don't really hear about it so again thank you for for the wonderful work you're doing and and the inspiration that you are in hearing your story was i was thinking about the practitioners themselves it's a lot of energy we know as mediators or medical practitioners that it it's a lot the stories the emotions um and hearing that pain what do you do for your for your mental health uh well-being um mm. while practicing yeah that's such an important question because what we realized is that we really need to come together as trainers after every single session and talk about it and really after every session we try to grab lunch or we try to just stay together for a little bit longer and talk about the, what we have witnessed what we have experienced and um yeah it can be and i'm sure step will say something to that as well um it can be traumatizing to listen to traumatizing events um so we have to we have to make sure that we ourselves get supervision that we speak to mental health um, experts about this work because otherwise it's too much um, to handle you know so frequently and that's why it's so important to um, to actually practice mental health well-being as you said as well yeah. I think absolutely. Um, we we really try to sort of practice what we preach uh, in the workshops, and it's it's like Helen said. We really quickly noticed that we need to have these debriefings after the sessions because it it really can be quite uh, burdening. Um, it also happens the other the opposite way. You know that sometimes you walk out of a workshop and you think, wow, there are two people who used to hate each other, and they've now through this process of a four hour story sharing before our workshop, they've now come together and, and apologized and made up. 
and that's something that's uh, I think hugely rewarding. And we always really try to also celebrate the big moments. Uh, you know, it's 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 the big moments, but it's also the small wins in the in the workshop. And um, it's definitely definitely very important to also see what what we as practitioners when we sort of recognize our own limits, and then that sometimes you sort of then need to take a step back and maybe sit this one out or um speak to a, a colleague about this and really give yourself the space to do that and we try to do that as much as possible but now obviously with with COVID and everything it's definitely taken a toll also on our volunteers we are blessed with an incredible group of volunteers and uh, partially also staff that have now uh, joined um, who come from all kinds of, of disciplines and who bring incredible talent to the table um, but obviously, as at the moment, we can only do these workshops uh, digitally and they're not happening in person. We see time and again how sort of not having this personal connection, not having these celebrating these small small wins together in the physical workshop uh, is really something that over time can <laughs> erode uh, a motivation and can lead to obviously mental health conditions. And I think that's that's really universal for for everyone now living through this pandemic, right? I think it has put mental health uh, very, very firmly on the agenda. It was already on the agenda, but now it's, oh man, like it's really, really on the agenda. And uh, I think we're gonna have to work over the next uh, years and possibly over the next decade to find better ways to address that in the, in the workplace and obviously in vulnerable populations where it's already a, a big uh, public health issue. Out of curiosity, do you have different names? Do you use different names for refugees? Um, so, for example, you know, a, a criminal may be called a participant um, within a restorative justice practice. Is there something like that in your process? Yeah, we, we try to call refugees newcomers. So that's something that from the beginning we made clear that refugees are newcomers and it's way more welcoming. And actually in German, we have two terms for refugees. One term is Flüchtling, which, is, uh, which describes the active way of fleeing a country. And one term is Geflüchteter, which means they were forced to flee. And so it's it just a tiny difference in the language. And it makes such a big, big difference saying yeah. if somebody was forced to flee rather than somebody who is fleeing and actively right. fleeing, you know. So that's yeah. why we always use this term this passive term of somebody who was forced to flee, Flüchtete in German, and in English we use the term newcomer. Yeah. Wow, so I, I love that. I love the newcomer. I, I, I was curious, as soon as you saw, you, I heard newcomer, uh, my heart opened up, because even as I was explaining that, like refugee, I, 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 it just puts a cringe, you know, in your yeah. face and it's, it's, has a lot words as we know are very very important in what we do so um thank you again for coming and and speaking to our communities here at the aba um we look forward to having you hopefully for one of our webinars with the international committee is there any last words that you have for us as we end uh yes first of all thank you so much for for having us on i really appreciate the opportunity and I think to 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 anyone who's listening and interested in this, you can check us out, check us out at www.r3esolute.com. That's resolute with a three instead of an e. 
um, because we stand for the three terms, respect, relate, resolve. That's our motto. Um, I think uh, what is for us quite important, we are a small uh, social startup, nonprofit, but very fastly growing. And it's always great if we can keep trainings going and if we can also compensate our um, our trainers, our co-trainers, our refugee co-trainers. And because we have such flat hierarchies, any donations that are coming in will directly benefit the refugees. They will directly go into compensating uh, the trainings, being able to actually provide refugees with these skills, uh, increasing our pool of resolutees. Um, and it's, it's really uh, something where I think everybody can contribute and every little donation is, it goes a long way for us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having us, Caroline, and for anyone who's listening. We always appreciate feedback or insights or any ideas, any uh, also like um, support that you have um, that is always so welcome. And yeah, thank you so much um, that we could be here and we're looking forward to see you again. Thanks well, it's our pleasure. No, it's our pleasure 100%. And we look forward to podcasting you next time. Thank you, Helen Winter and Sebastian Winter, for speaking with us on the ABA podcast, Resolutions. To learn more about Resolute, please visit resolute.com. Again, R3SOLUTE.com.